Thank you. Um, so I want to remind everyone that we are recording um, tonight's event. So we are going to post it on the T1D Huddle website for those of you who can't attend. Um, and to make sure that the session runs smoothly, we only have two ground rules. One, one person speak at a time, so please don't interrupt. And um, if the discussion is going a little bit longer than usual, I'll just give a little warning signal so we can close up. Um, because today we only have 30 minutes and we have a lot of questions already pre-submitted. So um, let me introduce Dr. Manili. Dr. Grady Manili completed medical school at the University of Saskatchewan, residence training at the University of Toronto, and fellowship training at the Harvard Medical School in Gerontology and Diabetes. He was the head of the UBC Department of Medicine from 2002 to 2017, and is currently physician in chief and head of medicine at Vancouver General Hospital. He currently runs a specialized multidisciplinary clinic for diabetes in the elderly, and his research and clinical interests focus on carbohydrate metabolism um, in this population. On a personal note, um, Dr. Neely was instrumental in bringing me to the UBC Department of Medicine. Um, he is an exceptional mentor who has and continues to have such a tremendous influence on my career path. Um, without Dr. Neely, there would be no T1D huddle. So without further ado, um, welcome to the huddle, Dr. Manoli. Thanks very much, Tricia. Can everybody give me a thumbs up that they can hear me okay? Okay, good. So we have 18 questions, uh, yeah. and I'll try to go through them. I'll, I'll try to go I'll try to go through them as quickly as I can. The first one says, what happens to insulin responsiveness? And, sorry? Go, sorry, Grady. I'll go ahead and ask the questions, and then you can answer. So okay. um, you don't have to worry about reading it. Um, and I made some changes to um, make it more efficient. But OK, the first one is from Alan. Um, Alan asks, I'm a 55-year-old, um, 55 years of age, and I've been type 1 for 30 years. Um, as I age, insulin is taking longer and longer to take effect. Currently, I am taking a bolus at least 30 minutes um, before, and I um, will have a significant and I will have a significant high after I eat. Will this trend continue? And what, if anything, can I do? I am on the tandem pump, which does not currently support BS. Ready? So, um, I mean, the tandem pump is excellent. I don't have a lot of experience with it but it's too bad that it doesn't support FIAS, that the algorithms don't support FIAS, because that would be the, the way to go if it was possible. I'm sure Tandem is working on it. Um, I guess the one thing that uh, we could ask is if the sites that you're using, your infusion sets, are getting scarred, and the question is whether you should have a diabetes educator inspect them and try to look for new sites that might be appropriate. That's all I have to offer. Okay, and does insulin resistance increase as you age? Yes, insulin resistance does increase as you age. Uh, it increases steadily with age regardless of, uh, of your body habitus. Insulin resistance increases with age. Okay. Alan, did you, um, would you like to follow up with Dr. Manelli? Okay, great. Next question is from Stuart. Um, he also asked about insulin resistance, so I'm going to ask the second part of his question. What about medical procedures and surgery? How advisable are they after the age of 75? So, I mean, with modern surgical and anesthetic techniques, 
uh, and modern care for diabetes perioperatively, the risk for a type 1 diabetic undergoing a surgery that's necessary is not that much greater than the age-matched population that doesn't have diabetes. Um, it helps to have, you know, unless it's a minor procedure, it helps to have surgeries done at hospitals that have a strong endocrine presence, like where you can easily get an endocrinologist to see you, especially if you have a pump, because uh, the expertise for pumps and that sort of thing is not great at all hospitals. At the Royal, Royal Columbian, for example, at the Royal Jubilee, at the Victoria General, at the at St. Paul's, at VGH, uh, they have strong endocrine services and you can get help managing your your pump perioperatively and your your glycemia perioperatively. So the short answer is you shouldn't have any surgical procedure if you don't need it. But provided you're in a good institution that handles a lot of patients with diabetes, the risk shouldn't be increased too much. Dorit, would you like to follow up with Dr. Manelli? Okay, you're good. All right, our next question is from Valentine. Um, what type of complications should um, T1D adults expect later in life um, if their A1C is within target range versus elevated? So um, if it's within target range, I mean, as you know, diabetes is a funny disease. People can have diabetes for long periods of time and have no complications. People can have diabetes for long periods of time and have only microvascular complications. People can have diabetes for long periods of time and only have macrovascular complications. A lot of the things that happen to patients with diabetes also happen to people as they age. So the incidence of neuropathy increases with age, even if you're not diabetic. So uh, you can expect that the, the prevalence of neuropathy in an older diabetic population is going to be higher than in a younger diabetic population, but that may be due just to the impact of aging and not the diabetes. Um, if, you're, if your hemoglobin A1C is in the 7 to 8 range, um, even though there is some genetic difference in, in predisposition, that should prevent you from having uh, most of the complications any more often than somebody who is in age match control without diabetes. Okay, and Valentine, did you want to follow up? Okay, the next question is um, from an anonymous source. Having been diagnosed at age 60 10 months ago, does that mean I am less likely to suffer from complications? I'm assuming that complications come from living with diabetes over many years. Well, I mean, provided that you maintain good control of your blood sugar and the associated risk factors, um, you should be protected from complications for a number of years. I guess one of the things that I would say is that when you're younger with diabetes, controlling your glycemia is particularly important, but when you get older, um, controlling the associated risk factors like hypertension and hyperlipidemia becomes increasingly important. And so paying attention to other cardiovascular risk factors is an important thing when you have type 1 diabetes in your age. Okay. Um, and the person who was anonymous, did you want to unanonymize yourself and follow up? Okay, uh, next one is from Maureen. 
Does diabetic neuropathy worsen as we age and will it affect more areas than feet and, feet and hands? Will insulin needs decrease or increase with aging? So um, there are two parts to that question. So with insulin needs, it's a bit complicated because there is insulin resistance with aging, which should put up insulin, um, insulin requirements, but at the same time, kidney function declines with age and insulin is cleared through the kidneys. So sometimes they balance it out because you need less insulin because your kidney doesn't clear as much insulin. So it depends on an individual case what happens to the insulin requirements. As for neuropathy, I think I sort of answered that question when I said that neuropathy increases with age even in people without diabetes, and there are lots of other causes of neuropathy that can occur in an older person besides diabetes. And one of the things that I would encourage all patients with diabetes to do if they develop neuropathy when they're older is to not automatically assume that it's due to diabetes, but to make sure they go to their doctor and get investigations done to look for other causes of, of, um, of neuropathy in older people, like B12 deficiencies, for example. Okay, and does um, neuropathy occur anywhere other than feet and hands? Um, yes, well, you can get autonomic neuropathy, for example, which affects the function of the stomach and the blood pressure and and other things, and uh, uh, you can get neuropathies of various sorts that affect other muscles and nerves. But it usually starts in the feet, and it's symmetrical, and then moves to the hands. Um, and when it does happen in other parts of the body, is it really are the symptoms pretty easily detectable? Like you wouldn't miss them if that were going on. Well, it, it depends on what it is. So there's something called di diabetic amyotrophy, for example, where a person will get a sudden pain in the groin area that they may think is related to a muscle spasm or uh, to uh, some other problem with the muscle or a blood clot or something like that when it's actually due to diabetic damage to to a nerve so sometimes it isn't sometimes it isn't okay Maureen, did you want to um unmute and follow up yeah, I just wanted to know, because I already have neuropathy, I wanted to know if it was going to get worse. If I wasn't well controlled, like, is it, is it progressive? No, Maureen, it's a tough one to answer because in some patients it's not progressive and in some patients it is. Okay. Being in better control um, makes it less likely that it will progress, but it doesn't eliminate it entirely. But what I would encourage is if you've been plugging along at the same level and you haven't noticed any changes and then suddenly you do notice a change, don't automatically attribute that to diabetes. That's something that should be investigated. Okay, thank you. Okay, our next question is from an anonymous source. How common is developing other autoimmune diseases as you get older? So the short answer is that most autoimmune diseases occur most commonly in the 20s and 30s, and then there's kind of a lull. And then the incidence of certain autoimmune diseases increases again when people get over the age of 70. So there's a second peak of certain autoimmune diseases in the 60s and 70s. Okay. Um, and the anonymous person, did you want to unmute and follow up? Great. Our next one is also from an anonymous source. How do we separate the long-term effects 
flash complications of type 1 from the typical effects of aging. I, I find there's a tendency to attribute every um, symptom to blood sugar control or tribute. Well, I guess what I would say is that it's sort of like the, 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 the answer that I gave in regard to neuropathy. You know, if your neuropathy gets worse, you shouldn't automatically attribute it to diabetes. There are a lot of things that are written off to aging or diabetes that need to be investigated. And I, I guess if you have new symptoms or signs, don't, don't necessarily accept the fact that those new symptoms or signs are due to the fact that you're getting older. Because aging of itself doesn't cause many symptoms. Normal aging causes very few symptoms. And don't automatically attribute it to diabetes. Be vigilant. If you start to get pain in your calves when you walk, or you start to get a pain in your stomach, or you get a pain in your chest, or you have some changes in your skin, don't automatically write those off to diabetes. Make sure you get it investigated and looked at. Okay, um, person who submitted that question, would you like to unmute and follow up? Okay, next one is from Patricia. Um, I have had diabetes since I was eight. I have no complications so far. I weigh all my food, balance it with insulin. Now I'm uh, running into scar tissue where the insulin has no effect. The blood glucose runs up and um, I have to take double shots hoping to find a clear spot. How often does this happen? Is there anything I can do about it? Well, if you've had diabetes for a long time with multiple daily insulin injections, you can often get lipodystrophy. Um, I guess the best way to answer that would be to say that it would be good to go to a diabetes educator and have her, have her or him check your, your injection sites and see if there are other options for um, injecting that there are places that maybe haven't rotated to or that, that haven't been used or places that are particularly hypertrophic so you want to avoid injecting in them. I realize it's a problem for a lot of people when they've had diabetes for a long time. But that's one of the reasons to go see a diabetes educator regularly to have a checkup for lipodystrophy and to help them help you pick sites that are more suitable for injection. And Patricia, would you like to unmute and follow up? Okay, our next question is from an anonymous source. If you become cognitively incapable of caring for yourself, for example, dementia, stroke, et cetera, what does type one um, diabetes care look like? It's hard to imagine trusting someone to watch your blood sugar in our over, um, already overcrowded, poorly funded long-term care homes. So um, I guess the first thing I'd say is that one of the things that happens to people with cognitive impairment of type one diabetes as they age is that you have to simplify their regimen sometimes and expect that they're not gonna have as tight control as they did when they were younger. So for example, those of you who've had type one diabetes for a long time will know that 30 years ago, we used to put people on twice a day pre-mixed insulin, and we don't do that anymore. We have people on insulin pumps or uh, multiple daily insulin injections. But sometimes when you're uh, when you get older and you're maybe not as cognitively intact, giving the injections twice a day of a BID premix may be the way to go in order to achieve adequate glycemic control. It's very important to make sure that when you get older that you don't go hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia, hypoglycemia is 
poorly tolerated by He just done. He's muted. Trisha. Uh, oh, um, Grady, you're. I, I think you might have bumped your computer because you're muted. No, what happened was Siri answered the question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and and I had to try to get rid of Siri because she was butting in on me. So. Hypoglycemia is is poorly tolerated in older people, and so you need to try to avoid hypoglycemia more. Uh, carefully when you're older than when you're younger. Um, you know, you sometimes have to rely on relatives. You sometimes have to rely on timers and alarms to make sure you remember your injections. Sometimes if you are on MDI, you have to go to fixed injections before meals. In other words, trying to carbohydrate count and adjust uh, insulin based on your carbohydrate intake becomes too difficult so that instead of having variable insulin doses before meals. You have the same insulin dose before each meal or the same one before lunch, same before breakfast, same before supper in order to compensate. Sometimes you have to get a pharmacy out to come there. In, in Vancouver, in the lower mainland, there are pharmacies that will come out and give insulin uh, two or three times, two times a day anyway. So there are multiple options for trying to achieve things, but it would be fair to say that it's, it's going to be harder to achieve optimal control when cognitive impairment comes. So to what extent are you aware of um, the quality of diabetes care in the long-term care homes in the lower mainland? Yeah, I'm not sure if you care for patients who uh, live in long-term homes. But, um, so um, the quality of, I, haven't, I have lots of patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes in nursing homes around the lower mainland, and I manage most of them by phone. Um, I would say that the quality of care of um, diabetes in nursing homes is uneven. There are some nursing homes that do a very good job. They manage blood, they monitor blood sugar regularly, they take direction from physicians like me quite well, and there are some that don't. There are some that are good from the dietary point of view and some that aren't. Um, so it's quite uneven in that regard. Uh, one thing I would say, I'd just like to put in a plug for my replacement. I'm training a replacement. Uh, there's a young woman called Sarah Sai who's uh, gone off to the Jocelyn Diabetes Center to do a fellowship in diabetes and elderly, and she's going to be coming back to start working with me and then eventually taking over my practice in November. And she has done a lot of work in diabetes in nursing homes, and one of her goals is going to be to try to improve the quality of diabetes in nursing homes. Uh, in the lower mainland as part of the mandate. Okay. Um, the person who submitted that question, I followed up with a question, but did you want to go ahead and unmute? Okay, so the next question is also from an anonymous source, and you may have already answered it. I think you did, but I'll ask it anyways. Um, what happens when your memory starts to fail and you can forget to take your insulin? Oh, I think I answered that. For sure. I mean, there are multiple options, family members, pharmacies, simplifying the insulin regimen, etc. Okay. Um, and the next question is from Bruce. Um, As someone who has had type 1 for 55 years, I have experienced many frustrations when being admitted to a hospital. The medical team seems to have no understanding of type 1. I've had to ignore some of the care the hospital staff was providing because of fear for my own life. 
do you know if there are any plans to provide specific professional education to all medical staff in the hospitals on type one? Also, there is generally very few staff that work at hospitals that understand insulin pumps and how they operate. This was just my own personal idea of one way we could improve T1D days in hospitals. But I think there are um, more about it. I can see that it would be um, not very hard to prepare a one to two hour lecture just teaching the differences between the type one and type two. So I share your frustration, especially if you're a complicated type one on an insulin pump. If you go to some hospitals in British Columbia, there's limited knowledge among the nurses, the doctors, and the allied health staff. And so whenever possible, and I alluded to this earlier, if you do have an insulin pump for sure, or if your diabetes is complicated to manage, it's good to go to a hospital that has an endocrinologist on call seven days a week. And, and when you get in there, ask the, ask the endocrinologist and consult them to help manage your case. Because, uh, especially when it comes to insulin pumps, I mean, you can't educate people about insulin pumps in a one-hour lecture or a two-hour lecture. You know, a lot of the staff are young and they turn over and move on to other things pretty quickly. So, um, so being able to maintain education of the staff to the point that they can adequately manage everybody who comes in with an with insulin pump, especially with, the different, with different brands, is pretty hard. So I would strongly recommend that you go to a hospital if you can that has expertise in, um, in using insulin pumps. If that fails and you're in a hospital that doesn't, one of the things you can ask your doctors to do is do telehealth consultation. So um, they could do telehealth consultation with VGH or St. Paul's or the Royal Columbian and get advice from the endocrinologist on call over the phone about how to manage your insulin pump. But I, I agree that it's frustrating and the level of educate we can't do enough education about diabetes in, in hospitals and we need to do more. Bruce, did you want to unmute and follow up? Okay, the next question is from an anonymous source. Um, I have I, had... I just saw something on the chat asking oh. how do you know which hospitals have an endocrine service? Okay. Nadia. Nadia, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the DGH in St. Paul's, the Royal Columbia, and the Royal Jubilee, Victoria General, all have endocrinologists on call seven days a week. Um, other than that, I'm not sure uh, which hospitals have. I'm not sure. If, so I think Sir Memorial does too. Uh, I think they'd be cool. Uh, so any one of those hospitals, if you ask to have an endocrinologist be involved in your care, they should be available within 24 hours to help assist in that. And as we said, if that doesn't work, then, a, then asking for a telehealth consultation to help manage your diabetes is a good thing. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No worries. Um, okay, um, the next question is from Allison. Do you have any tips on how to plan for managing type one financially as we age? I'm sorry, I don't. I mean, it's a real problem in our healthcare system. Uh, I would approach Diabetes Canada about that for any tips that they have. But unfortunately, in BC, we're stuck with fair pharmacare, and the coverage is uneven, and people often have to make significant out-of-pocket expenses before the pharmacare coverage kicks in. Um, 
it's one of the, it's different in different provinces. In Alberta, for example, the support for type 1 diabetes is better. I believe it's also better in Ontario. Um, one of the things that our Prime Minister has a problem, um, uh, one of the things that Justin Trudeau has identified as a problem is the lack of a national pharmacare program, and, and the NDP are certainly pushing that federally. So um, I, I agree with the comment that was made, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and the more we can advocate for resources for patients with diabetes, I mean, it's because everybody advocated so strongly uh, that the insulin pumps are now covered in British Columbia. Although I realize the coverage is imperfect and partial. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read this question, even though it's essentially the same question, but I wanted Natalie to know I'm going to read it. Wondering about care options once retired and no longer covered by extended health benefits through employment. So it's essentially the same financial issues on um, uh, provincial care. Is there anything you wanted to add, Brady? No, just that I think, you know, advocating going to Diabetes Canada, Canada and advocating along with Diabetes Canada is really important. Okay. Um, anonymous source, are there specific vitamins, herbs, or foods that help with eye aging and blood vessels? Well, I mean, eating a balanced diet as, as advocated for by Canada's Food Guide and by a, a certified diabetes educator in a diabetes center is the best thing you can do. There is no evidence that particular multivitamins and that sort of thing um, are, are particularly helpful for eye aging or vascular aging. Um, there's lots of anecdotal stuff, but no real evidence. Certainly if you have macular degeneration, there are some vitamin preparations that ophthalmologists recommend that may be helpful. But in general, eating a well-balanced diet that has all the major food groups and that sort of thing is the best way to go. Okay, we only have two minutes left. And I have two questions to get under the wire. Um, from an anonymous source, I've had uh, type one for almost 50 years and my A1C has remained at seven to eight over this period. But to date, my complications are very limited. What should I try to do better or um, be concerned about as I age? Well, I think you're doing great, first of all. So first of all, you should get a big pat on the back for doing that well, because it's hard to maintain that level of control for a long, long time. So that's, that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, as I said earlier, it's not just about the blood sugar when you get older. When you, when you get older, blood pressure and lipids become more important. So making sure your blood pressure is well controlled and your lipids are well controlled is a very important part of overall comprehensive diabetes care. Okay, and here's our last question from an anonymous source. I've had diabetes for 53 years now and wondering if there are any support groups for people that have had it for this many years. Well, I don't know, but I would turn that question back to you, Tricia, um, because you're the expert in support groups. I'm not aware of any support groups, but I thought that partially what we're doing right now is part of that support group. And, yeah. and I, would, I would turn that back to you and say, that's a question for you to answer. Well, so to my knowledge, um, the only other support groups I know um, would be Young and Type 1, who, which is uh, targeting 18 to 35. The injectors, um, they are also a group, not as active, but they uh, target older, uh, probably, you know, um, 40 and over. And I, I don't know if there's an upper age limit. Um, and for our group, we have a pretty large cohort of 
folks who are 16 over, um, definitely over 15 people, maybe 20. Um, so I think um, our, the huddle is one of your best bets. Um, and there is a group in Victoria, a store, you know about it, called Beers and Bolas. Um, they certainly have 50% of their group seem to be older than 55. So there are a um, several options and whoever asked that question, um, please feel free to email me afterwards and we can talk more about it. All right, so it is 6.30. It was a really lightning round, quick question and answer. I want to thank Dr. Manili for coming and answering these questions, especially since um, his time is very valuable. Um, and I'm sure everyone was really happy um, to have, have you come and you know, answer the questions. So we're going to turn it over to the next part of the um, session, which is sharing my diagnosis stories. Um, thank you, Dr. Manili. Thanks again for taking out time. Thank you. So, thank you. Can I just say one thing, and that is that uh, a certified diabetes educator with an interest in gerontology has just passed me a note to remind me that, um, the, that one of the ways to help with assistance in the cost of diabetes when you're over 65 is to use the cards that are available from the drug companies that you can give the pharmacy for samples. Uh, to get samples from your physician when you can, and to look for compassionate assistant programs that some of the uh, pharmaceutical companies have. So I want to throw that in. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Brady. It's such Bye. a privilege to have you here. Thanks. Okay. All right, so for those of you who are staying on to our next segment, um, the next segment, Sharing My Diagnosis, um, was inspired by Lauren Moore um, last month um, for our June session. Um, she uh, uh, so generously shared her diagnosis story, but more importantly, her acceptance story. Um, and that actually prompted uh, several of you to um, email me and ask if you, know, if you could, um, people um, in the huddle could actually share their own stories. So we have um, a lot of people who volunteered or who would like to share. And um, I'm going to give each person up to 10 minutes. You can use it all, um, you know, use however you, you like. And the people who um, are not um, called upon, because we need to end this at 730, we'll just have you share next month in our August um, session. So, um, and we ordered it in the order that people contacted us. And our first um, huddle member is Ashley, Ashley R. Would you like to go ahead and share your diagnosis story? <laughs> Are you here, Ashley? All right, so I'm gonna go to number two and hopefully Ashley will you know, submit a question on this chat box. Lana, Lana S or Lana, Lana S. Oh, Lana's not here either. Okay, I know this person's here because I already talked to this person. Stuart, Stuart, would you like to share your diagnosis story? Oh, no, he was here, I swear. Oh, <laughs> well, you know what, Dave? You're here and I see, your, <laughs> I see you raising your hand and you, <laughs> um, go ahead, Dave. Hi, uh, uh, can you hear me properly? Yes, very loud and clear. Okay, uh, um, great. Uh, the first thing I have to say is uh, uh, 
I love the T1 huddle. Thank you, Dr. Tang and your team. Um, I, I, I was thinking that no one's actually asked me what it was like when I was diagnosed. Um, so this is a first. I did write down some uh, little notes. Uh, at the time, I was a, a pilot in Alberta. I was a, a class two flight instructor. I uh, had my multi-engine rating. Uh, I did the radio licenses for Industry Canada. Um, I, I, I thought I had it made, and it's just a big ladder uh, in aviation. Um, and you would go uh, under 40 for um, an aviation medical uh, once a year. So I went in, and they do a urine test. I don't know if they were looking for cocaine or whatnot, but uh, um, anyway, so I, I got called back. And uh, um, they said, there's an issue uh, with your A1C. And it turned out that my A1C, the last time I did my medical was 7.9, and this time it was 9.7. Uh, so I, here, here's a word we're all hearing, asymptomatic. I had no symptoms whatsoever. Uh, so this was a bit of a blow. Um, and I just happened to be cleaning out uh, a whole bunch of stuff, uh, old taxes, et cetera, and I came across my aviation file, um, and there was a letter from the Transport Canada Aviation Medical Officer saying, your A1C is out there, uh, and we're basically shutting you down. You have to go see an endocrinologist, uh, et cetera. Just look at my notes here. So that was in 1996. Um, and, and at the time, I heard that uh, you know people would have uh, three or four careers in their life, and I was planning to have one. So who are these people that are having seven or eight or nine? Uh, I just didn't understand. Um, anyhow, um, it was devastating. Uh, I, I saw the endocrinologist, and uh, he said, uh, you're a type 1 diabetic and uh, we're gonna put you on metformin to start. And as soon as I took a drug uh, that could cause me to go hypo, um, uh, it, it, it's called an aviation um, validation certificate. So I, I, I still have a commercial license, but I don't have the medical that validates it. Uh, so, so that was really the, uh, the end of my aspiring uh, uh, career. Uh, I do remember phoning my parents, my dad, who's an endocrinologist, and I was in tears. Um, I, I, did, I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. I had a, a newborn daughter. Um, my wife, Michelle, was working as a school teacher. Um, and and uh, we, we just had to change everything. And... To this day, uh, I'm like, you know, why me? You know, why, why did I get this thing out of the blue? Uh, I think that's probably all, all I have. Uh, I still remember my license number, 142182. Um, and, you know, it's 24 years ago. Uh, I have flown once since then. My wife bought me uh, a flight. Uh, in the States in a World War II training aircraft. Um, um, but that's it. I love aviation. Every time a plane flies over, over top, I take a look. 
see where it's going and see where it's coming from. Um, but uh, there, there's my story. I just, I did a aviation medical and boom. My, 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 my hopes and dreams of flying were over. And that's my story. Um, we have a question from Nadia. Nadia asked, how old were you when you were diagnosed, Dave? Oh, don't make me do math. Uh, I, I think I, I was probably uh, 28 or 29. Okay. So, so as I was to get type 1 diabetes at 29, you know? So what did you do then? So you were um, understandably really upset and devastated. And how long did it take before you were able to find another path that you were happy with? Well, it took me a while. I, I was still uh, teaching ground school and things like that, but uh, I was actually, I was so, I finally I did get symptoms. I was so tired and I was losing weight. I was, I was sleeping on the floor in my office. Um, and I'm about 145 pounds. I was down to 118 the last time I weighed myself, and that was before I got put on insulin. And then, of course, I've, I've gone through the whole uh, multiple injections. Uh, and then uh, I remember driving uh, to Blaine across the border because they had uh, what you would call it insulin. You would know Dr. Kutang. Um, it wasn't available in Canada anymore. Um, the, the, anyway, and I was always so you got to go on the pump, you got to go on the pump. And I resisted because I didn't want to have this thing sticking in me uh, the whole time. But uh, um, being on the pump is the best thing I, I've ever done. Yeah. So I think what made, makes it um, particularly hard is that you are asymptomatic. So you weren't experiencing any symptoms. So And you get diagnosed and it's kind of, you know. Well, uh, WTF. Uh, like, I mean, how was it affecting your flight flying? It wasn't, it, to your knowledge. Um, so you've been asked to basically check out of your craft, your passion. Yeah, so, so that was uh, uh, the kicker was that, that I, there was nothing there. Like, what is this? I, and I know what type di one diabetes is. My aunt had it and had to, used to go to the hospital to prick her finger with the big machine, you know, once a month. Um, so anyway, I, I understood, and she actually uh, committed suicide, probably from type one diabetes because uh, um, of depression and drinking and, and, and whatnot. So I was aware of it, but I thought it was juvenile diabetes, not just right. type one diabetes. Um, we have another question from Janet. What did you do as a career after not being able to fly? Uh, my older brother was in the financial zone working in Singapore and New York City and Japan. And anyway, I was, I started trading equity options. And if you had done the opposite of what I did every time, you'd be rich. Uh, so I had a couple, I had a couple good, uh, um, whatever, home runs, um, and made quite a bit of money. And... I built that conservatively, and that's what I do now. Is I, I have my own uh, investment company, but it's not what I wanted to do. I was I was working from home, and uh, um, we had moved to Vancouver uh, just because we could move anywhere. And mother-in-law was here, and we had the, the two babies, um, 
So I, I, I really have not many friends because uh, I, I was never in the workforce in, in Vancouver where we live. I, I was working out of my office uh, at home. So I'm not, not proud of what I do, but uh, it paid the bills. So my question for you is, um, how was it for your family? And the reason I ask this is because I, you know, I love what I do. And um, if I couldn't do what I do, I, could, I would imagine that it would actually bleed over into, you know, my spouse's happiness. Like just how was it for your family that you weren't able to do something that you love? Even though you were able to pay the bills, have another job, and I, I don't know, I, my wife had to put up with uh, my crappy moods when I was low, um, and and all the other things that go with, you know, trying to manage your your, your diabetes. Uh, um, so I feel bad for her, but that's what it was. Well, thanks for sharing, Dave. Um, well, thanks for having me. This is uh, wonderful. By the way, I am yeah. in Tofino right now, which I was just told on the radio on the news before the world at six. This is the coldest place on all of Vancouver Island. <laughs> We're in fog. It's raining a bit. Um, I got totally sunburned uh, two days ago. Yesterday on the beach, I was wearing like a burka, uh, uh, like wearing shoes and socks. <laughs> like never done that before, but. Uh, uh, having a very nice time. I have a glass of champagne beside me if you can't see. Well, of course, that's why you're having a great time. You're drinking alcohol. <laughs> All right, um, great. I'm gonna, I, can I see Nadia? Um, I'm muting, or okay. not yet? Oh, no, 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 go ahead and mute. Um, Nadia, do you wanna go ahead and share since I see your pretty face? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that, Dave. Um, Listening to that too, I was like, that is so vastly different than my experience. Um, I was a 16 year old girl in high school going to the bathroom peeing all the time and losing weight. So I dealt with bullying from bulimia because that's what everyone was convinced was wrong with me. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'd never been to the doctor before and none of that kind of stuff. So I didn't have a GP, none of that kind of stuff. Getting teased at school, getting skinnier and skinnier. You know, I lost. 30 pounds in like two weeks so i definitely had symptoms <laughs> um but it was just like brutal <laughs> and uh but i refused to let it kind of stop what i was doing so the weekend before i was diagnosed i still went camping with my friends out of the lake uh everyone was a little bit worried about me but i was like no still here won't stop <laughs> uh and then yeah i went to uh school and you know, I was a good student, so the teacher gave me crap for being late because I slept in, and like that morning, I couldn't support myself over the sink just to wash my face, um, just because I was so much. Well, I'd lost all my muscle mass too, and uh, um, yeah, went to school, got yelled at by the teacher, so that you know was standard. You know, so he was equal to you know the kids that showed up late it was a form of disrespect, etc. Uh, yeah, and then that end of day went to the GP, um, my mom's GP, and uh, he managed to kind of like get me in. And uh, he knew right away that it was type one from the symptoms. I was drinking a lot, peeing a lot, lost weight, and uh, they couldn't get, you know, even something to poke my finger to figure out what I was at. <laughs> uh, so sent me down to the hospital, and again, never broken anything. <laughs> kind of medical knowledge of any of this kind of stuff and 
they kind of rushed me through emerged to a certain extent it seemed like compared to you know the like hundred people that seemed like they were all sitting there um, they poked my finger and kind of said go away so you know, whatever went away went back to sit with my dad and emerge and you know it looked like there was a guy next to me having a heart attack and two nurses came up to me with uh, with a wheelchair and like please get into the wheelchair and I was like uh, I'm a healthy 16 year old I'm fine what's your problem <laughs> no please get into the wheelchair still didn't really tell me what was kind of going on and got wheeled into like an operating room is what it kind of like looked like to me again no one really told me what was going on uh, and then everyone started trying to get um, needles into me just to get me rehydrated because I was so dehydrated and I think they said that I was at like a 60 or something like that when I went in um, and uh, but I, I was really lucky I mean it, it all got explained but in terms of that like diagnosis was just brutal um, and then yeah I wasn't at school I never missed school so then everyone was like oh what happened to Nadia and all that kind of stuff like I mean that's the world of a teenager right that's that's all that kind of mattered <laughs> uh, and then you know diagnosis did go okay but I guess it's all the the other stuff um, that yeah like went back to school and I was like oh I want diabetes so I can be skinny <laughs> like all this kind of weird stuff and it's just like screw you guys I just spent like two weeks in ICU like you have no idea <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, the weekend after my parents were like super, um, amazing in terms of supporting me and like that I was still going to do everything and nothing was going to stop. So the weekend after I got out of Emerge, I did, it was with, a, I went out, uh, water skiing with friends. <laughs> um, the mom was a nurse <laughs> that had visited me in the hospital. So she at least like knew. So, I mean, it was relatively okay, but um, and I had a friend that was on my basketball team that uh, was actually on a pump. So I got on a, on a pump right away, pretty much. I was on pen needles for a year and I've been on the pump ever since. So that's been really good. But um, yeah, the whole diagnosis, you know, that for me, I guess, like month around that time was just really, really sucked. Um, I think it's hard enough being a teenage girl and body images and all that kind of stuff. And then you add everything like that on top. But, uh, yeah, so I mean very different because of I think the age um, I mean I was super happy at least I got Halloween as a kid and those kinds of things but uh, yeah anyways that's my story <laughs> try to keep so, it in 10 minutes <laughs> um, it sounds, like a, sounds like a whirlwind um, and um, you know I'm wondering how you were doing emotionally at each stage so like when you noticed you knew something was physically wrong it was obviously wrong you you know I was went just to pissed your... off I was like why can't I walk up the stairs and talk <laughs> I was pissed off at my body for not working. <laughs> no idea what was going on. You know, I was peeing and my pee was clear. I was like, oh, I guess I'm healthy. I'm just drinking a lot of water. I'm healthy. Uh, <laughs> that kind of thing like that. But no, it didn't register like at all. And it didn't register for probably a really long time. It was just kind of like, all right, something to deal with. Yeah. How long? I mean, when did it finally register for you and that anger turned into a different emotion? Well, I guess I just kind of never glossed over that. Honestly, it was until I met other type 1 diabetics that wanted to talk about it, which is maybe five years ago. <laughs> so like 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. And um, aside from being, you know, pissed and angry about it, um, were there any other emotions you felt at different moments? When you were, you know, 16 to 25? Like, <laughs> um... I was pretty stone cold about it. Like, it was just kind of like, all right, this is what it is. 
it's better than dead is what I would say <laughs> when people would kind of harp on me for it or ask too many questions. Because I've heard people say that, you know, their classmates would say stupid, idiotic things that would, um, you know, hurt your feelings because they were, on top of it, was just ignorant. It wasn't meant, you know, hostily, but like, yeah, how, how was it with your friends or just classmates? It was more, you can't do stuff. And that was where it's like, no, I'm doing it. <laughs> and that was, I guess, where the anger kind of came from, that I was just like, no, I'll run high because the low is the risk. So I always run high. So you were going to prove them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, I'll go water skiing. What are you talking about, Dad? I can't go water skiing. I'll just run high. It'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So for you, it was to push through it. Just keep pushing through and not letting it take you down in any way. But also then not dealing with it. <laughs> but yeah. So at what point do you feel like you sat down and finally decided you'd be willing to deal with it? Yeah, I think when I met my friend Allie, who's a type 1 diabetic about five years ago, and she was real about it. And so she's the one that introduced me to this group. <laughs> and, you know, told me her stories. You know, that her eye neuropathy issues and that kind of stuff, it just was real. I was like, oh, I'm not alone. I don't have to tell the whole world about it or not tell the whole world about it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I know you and Allison. I just thought like you have such a special friendship. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, you experience the same exact challenges. You love the same sports and um, how lucky it is to find someone who totally yeah. gets you. Yeah. And not just the but everything else. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, yeah. Pissed off um, <laughs> um, so you can see the notes and the, um, the remarks in the chat box, Nadia. Like, there's no questions, but I think people just wanted to let you know. Um, thank you for sharing. Yeah, thank um, you, guys. And I want to thank you too, because I know you um, you have definitely um, shied away from talking about the emotional stuff, um, just because you don't want to open that door. And so, for you to share that is a huge deal. Um, Again, because just from what I know of you, it's probably something, you know, it's kind of a big leap for you. It's, you know, you're kind of being vulnerable in a way that you have. Well, and being allowed to be mad about it or get over being mad about it. Yeah. Actually move to that acceptance stage and maybe stop running high. I think that's yeah. a good direction. So. Um, <laughs> do you have any questions? If you do. So please feel free. I mean, we have a smaller group. Please feel free to unmute, ask, or submit something in the chat box. Can I ask you what your A1C was at admission? I don't even know. Like, I don't even remember. Um, you know, they all they talked about at that stage was kind of that, uh, like, I mean, my, yeah, my blood sugar was you know, above 22.2. So that that's like, I still don't really understand how they knew that. <laughs> um, uh, but they didn't, you know, they didn't do, you know, the A1C numbers didn't make sense to me at that time. Um, and I didn't have a specialist. Um, but yet I got on a pump right away, which was lucky. But uh, yeah, I'm not too sure <laughs> what it was. I'd like to know too, actually. <laughs> the more that I hear about other people's diagnosis stories, but I didn't know that that was something to 
to kind of even know or care about at that stage. And I was old, old enough that um, I basically ran with it. My parents were involved, but uh, not like a lot of other younger diagnosed, uh, I think, patients or, you know, type 1 diabetics. And uh, yeah. I can just imagine you in like the Wonder Woman pose. Like, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that was I just ridiculously stubborn and this wasn't gonna stop me and and uh and then my parents helped facilitate that. because uh, I think otherwise it would have gone really, really badly for me. Great, thank you so much, Nadia. Thanks. Um Alicia, are you here, Alicia? Okay, Janet. Janet Horn, I know, I think I know you're okay. Yes, Janet, please unmute. Okay. Um, now, it's, it's interesting hearing from Nadia because I was also 16 when I was diagnosed but, um, and in high school. Um, I guess I was really fortunate because I had a pretty um, uh, supportive group of friends and family around as well who I, there wasn't a, in my group, there didn't seem to be a lot of teasing and stuff about it, but, um, but it was a long time ago. So because I'm, um, I was diagnosed at age 16 in 1968. So all of you uh, people who have been diagnosed more recently should be appreciate the fact that you have all this technology because at that time um, you had to sterilize your syringe in rubbing alcohol. And I think the disposable needles were just coming in, but at first I, you also had to sterilize your needle and it wasn't very sharp. And so it was just this whole, um, whole time frame and the only way of monitoring your blood sugar um, would be uh, we had a little kit with urine testing and you had to put five drops of urine and ten drops of water and then drop a tablet in and match the color which was really what your blood sugar was probably about two hours ago so <laughs> it, it wasn't very helpful um, but you I had you had to live with it and I I also love water skiing so I uh, my family was pretty good at not letting me stop doing what I wanted to do. They always tried to make sure that you would do it safely when you could, but I, if I wanted to do it, I did it. And, um, but at that time, and, I, and when you were diagnosed at that time, um, I was the same at school. I was running out to drink at the fountain and going to the bathroom all the time. And then I got actually quite badly constipated. And that's the reason that my mom took me to the doctor who was actually a pediatrician pediatrician but he lived up the street and he knew our family as well and it was in Vancouver I don't live in Vancouver anymore I'm on the island but um but it it was uh so I was put in the old children's hospital which was over past Canby Street and I was in the hospital for two weeks with learning how to inject and my friends brought in stuffed animals and oranges and things like that so it was it was quite a quite a, it and it was quite a traumatic experience too so um but I had, I had been in a group and I planned this, we used to have these, these dinners and it was a father and daughter banquet in the hospital. Uh, even at that time, they, it, because I had been one to plan it with, and my, they let me go out with my dad for the banquet while I was still admitted to the hospital and go to the thing that I had planned. So that was actually quite good because I know a lot of hospitals have rules about where you can go when you're in there. And, um, so that was the early years and you, you know, I, I, I have always had trouble with lows. So don't always be afraid of the lows, but um, I, that's why I always made sure the people around me knew and I probably wouldn't be alive today if I hadn't told people 
around me because I have had, I've ended up in emergency a number of times. But um, when I was in my 40s and finally had, had got a pump, I have not been to emergency since I've had an insulin pump. And for me, um, I don't know if, if any of you who are on beef and pork insulin or the doing the injections with quick acting insulin and slow acting insulin, but it, for me, it was almost like the slow acting insulin would build up in my body and it would just send me into these very bad lows that came on quite quickly without a lot of the warning signs. And um, so I had many experiences. So I, I think I have a bit of a resilient personality because my husband always says that to me. And, um, and you know, you just kind of carry on when the things happen and you do the best you can do. And I think all of us as diabetics know that your blood sugars are never perfect and that you do have your ups and downs and you just have to kind of deal with it and carry on the best you can. And uh, so that's, kind of what went on in the early years. And I guess one of the changes for me was um, when, um, well, I, and I did go to university and I, I was a teacher. So those of you that have said it, it is fortunate and you've said with mental health to be able to be on an extended health plan, which does help with the finances as well. And then when you're retired, um, we have one that we we pay into and it's very costly to pay into but you we have the coverage which is so valuable for a diabetic if you are able to have that kind of a plan um but during my first pregnancy and that was probably my one of my biggest traumatic experiences and because i had moved and it's a smaller i live in the comox valley and at that time um so that would have been the late 70s there was only one um internal medicine specialist in the valley and the doctors here, I had a very good um, obstetrician when I was pregnant and he had worked in Vancouver and they thought they could handle me here, but you know, with no blood testing machine and you had to go to the lab and I ended up driving to the lab when my blood sugars turned to be very low and things like that happened. So um, anyway, I, th during that, I lost that baby between about three and four months along. So that was very sad. But I do, I, I, so after that, um, that was right when the blood test machines first started coming. So before I was pregnant, the next time I had, the first blood test machines were quite large, like they were very rectangular and had a little dial on them. And then they got better and more efficient. And um, I did, so I did get referred to a specialist in Vancouver and she, she was um, an internal medicine specialist, but she was handling all, all of the, um, complicated diabetic pregnancies that came into the lower mainland and then eventually they had a whole team working with a nurse and uh, um, and and um, I still am in touch with her as well and so she handled me through the next two pregnancies and I did have two uh, successful pre pregnancies with and I have a son and a daughter who are in their 30s uh, now and um, and they all the my family all knows how to recognize because I get quite ornery as we all do with low blood sugar and they can tell by the way I talk or my face how we're reacting so I've always had people around me who have been very good that way and um, and being a teacher and I taught elementary I I always talked about it with my class and it's it's very interesting because the kids um they don't always um they don't always see when an adult could be the one that might be in trouble and so um and there's, there's usually, most of them have diabetics or type 2 diabetics or type 1 diabetics in their family. So they were always very interested and they always watched me very carefully after that. And I had, I always had my 
whatever it was, jube jubes or dex tabs in my drawer and I never had ever steal them from me. <laughs> so that was kind of the, the way. Um, so, so that was, so, so the development of blood testing machines made a huge difference for me. And then when I got the pump, um, just having that. And then I, I have also learned, um, I have the, um, the 24 hour sensors that I was using for a while and I have the Freestyle Libre now, but even I have grandchildren now too. So when you go to babysit the grandkids, you wanna make sure your blood sugars are staying in the normal range. So it is lovely to have the 24 hour monitor that can beep when it's going low and go up and, and the Freestyle Libre makes it so you can check your blood sugar pretty frequently. Um, and uh so those were the those are the main things and um and i think um just having keeping in touch with doctors who are really supportive and know what they're doing and and the team is is just so important for diabetics because i think the doctor that i got referred to after i'd lost the first baby who handled me through my next two pregnancies and then she was my i would go to vancouver to see her you know a couple of times a year um she's retired now but she um she did what I feel doctors need to do with diabetics because we all have such different different needs and our blood sugars aren't don't always react. We're we're very individual. And so she teaches you to manage it yourself and just helps you and that kind of thing. Would look at my results. And one time I remember she said to me, What do you do on Mondays? And I said, Oh, well, Mondays is my day off. And she says, Oh, I can see that. And she was <laughs> looking at the blood sugars, you know, those kinds of things. And so she's teaching you to manage it yourself, which was great. And I said, I, I think only twice have I been referred to a specialist with a for with diabetes where I have just gone back to my GP and said, I, I need to go to a different one. This one is they know their stuff, but it's they're just not I'm just not fitting with them. So I think it's important to be able to find one or a person who you can work with, whether it's a a nurse or whoever on the team. Um, so I think that was, I'm just looking at my, my notes there. And I think, uh, I think that was some of the things and, oh, and um, just one thing with uh, like, just with working with your doctors. And I think my endocrinologist uh, quite a few years ago just said to me, um, they're both working, him and his partner were both really trying to get type ones to when you have low blood sugar, just, make sure you only eat the 15 grams of carbohydrate because so many of us, and you do get so hungry and then you overeat and your blood sugars all spike up and those kind of things. And um, so just some of those kinds of advice that you get. So I guess I think for me, um, just if I could um, give advice for, because I've been a diabetic now for almost 52 years and I'm still healthy and um, active and I, um, and I don't have complications as of now and that I don't that could be just my body the way it is and um, But I would just give my words of advice for everyone would be to just stay positive and be resilient and um, Make sure you can just deal with what comes and goes and um, And also as for Nadia and others just do what you love. I know flying um, flying it might be an issue for doing what you love, but you could do it in other ways, but do what you love and just try to keep the diabetes safe. If you, you know, if you want to, not that I want to run a marathon, but if you want to run a marathon, then there's ways you can figure it out to do it and those kinds of things. And um, um, yeah, so that kind of stuff. And um, 
and I think I've talked about the doctors in healthcare because it's a team approach with the diabetes and and then also keeping informed and with the new research and I had always belonged to the Diabetes Association and we did get a group here for a while um, um, and then it faded out for, with the diabetes group so it is important to um, if you can find type one diabetics and um, it seems to be a little more common because when I was younger it, it was I hardly ever saw anyone else who was a type one diabetic and and that was even when I was in Vancouver so this group is really good for everyone too and um, I think that's I think that's about it stay positive and yep and keep healthy and active so that's what I would pass on to everyone Thank you, Janet. You know what I've heard? Um, the theme that kept kind of reoccurring through the journey your whole heart, entire life is that you always had the right people around you. You always had people who were so supportive. Like when you first got diagnosed, your friends weren't mean about it. Your family was supportive. Um, you had a great um, gestational diabetes expert who was, you know, wanted to make sure that you, she gave you personalized care. When you didn't like a certain GP, you switched. You knew that it was all about a goodness of fit. And so you, you know, whether it was by accident or it seems like on purpose sometimes too, that you always made sure you were surrounded by the right people. Mm -hmm. That's what made, um, you know, having type one better for you. Mm -hmm. And there's, and there's many of my friends who have rescued me from, uh, low blood sugar at times and things like that. So, uh, and they all appreciate it. Sometimes I would talk to very close friends too much and they would get tired of it and tell me they were tired of hearing about it. But, you know, those kinds of things. But, but it's, it is important to keep the ones close to you really well aware of it. My kids once when I, um, after, I think it was when I retired and they did a skit for me and uh, they, um, they imply that it that I wasn't quite uh, so much fun now that I had an insulin pump because they weren't seeing all those low blood sugar kind of ornery <laughs> moments. <laughs> so, so that was uh, and you, and you have to have a sense of humor too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I think is really interesting is that you know you um, were very open about it to your friends and they were supportive. And you know, I've talked to other people who. Um, you know, when they eventually tell their friends, their friends are really supportive, but for a long time, they're not willing to. Um, and when you ask them, you know, were you, were, were you afraid that your friends would reject you? No, not really. I just, it, it, you know, that there's some barrier, even mm -hmm. though your friends are good people. And so for you, it seems like that barrier really didn't exist. Like you were just very free about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, all right, uh, Alicia, I, I, saw, I saw you here. So um, did you want to go ahead and share? Oh, you, um, you're on mute, so you might want to unmute. Still mute. <laughs> Do you see the button, the little microphone on your computer that you can click to unmute yourself? Oh, I, I feel like I hear something. Is that uh, you? Oh wait, your microphone's not working either. Or you're mute. Oh, but it says that it's working. What is wrong? Uh, might, you she might have to turn her volume up. Wait, yeah, her. turn the volume up on your computer. It might be on silent by accident. 
I just pressed the little um, loudspeaker thing or the bullhorn with the little symbols. Do you see it? <laughs> okay, so while you're figuring out that out, I'll say, Teresa, Teresa, are you here? Okay, can you guys hear me? Yeah, who's that? Oh, good. Okay. Um, yeah, I can relate to Janet. So I was diagnosed in 1967 when I was seven years old. So it was really strange because, because I had never heard of it. My family had never heard of it. Um, and yeah, so we lived on a military base. Um, about six hours from Edmonton. So I had to drive up to Edmonton and it was really terrifying being in the hospital with a lot of children that had you know, you know, quite illnesses. And I thought, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm just, I, I was skin and bones. You know, at school I'd been peeing nonstop, having to drink water. And I think it was more my teacher at the, you know, at the parent-teacher meetings that, you know, Teresa, has lost so much weight, always has to go to the bathroom, always has to drink water. You guys should take her to the doctor. So that was what happened. But so yeah, I just I was in the hospital for about two weeks, then came back. And so kind of the thing that was too bad at that time, um, we would have to drive to Edmonton to see the diabetic specialist. And he was a real fear monger and really hard on my parents. But it was a lot of the complications that people get from being diabetic for so many years. And I found that this was really scary as a child and I kind of dreaded getting old. I didn't want to get old. I didn't want to get past a certain age because I just thought this is what happens to diabetics. And, and I didn't have support because I never met anybody. You know, there was nobody on the military base, nobody's kids, no adults that had diabetes. And, the odd time we would drive up to Edmonton and go to a clinic, it was, you know, this young girl and all these older adults. So I had nobody to relate to. And um, yeah, so it was like that for most of my school years. None of my friends had diabetes. The schools I went to, nobody was diabetic. So I really felt I was all alone, you know, with this condition. And it was more of the support. My mom was so supportive of me. and really helped me out a lot. But the other thing too, my grandmother, her younger brother had died from diabetes just before insulin had been um, discovered. So then I always have heard about this story, you know, about this great uncle of mine who died from diabetes. So, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of positives. And I mean, since moving to Vancouver, I've heard, you know, the good care that children here get at Children's Hospital and how positive the uh, diabetic teams are with kids. And I always think, I wish I could redo it. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could go back and just learn everything all over again. But I basically, I think because I didn't know anybody and didn't have any support from about age 14 to about 19, I really rebelled against it. And um, like Janet, you know, there was no blood glucose testing. It was all by urine. And, you know, it was a real hassle. And then 
the whole needle thing. Like I can't remember how long we used a glass syringe because my parents you know, took care of that end of it. So I don't remember when disposable syringes came in. I think it was when I was a teenager and I could start giving myself my own needle and everything. But um, yeah, but uh, so I really rebelled a lot. And you know, I don't, you know, in testing for urine, I mean, who knows what your blood sugar is really. I mean, it's not, it's not a very accurate way to test. And I kind of, through my teenagers sort of just, I guess went into denial. Just kind of lived sort of almost not too much like a non-dynamic. I gave myself, you know, I was giving one uh, needle a day. So it was short-term and long-term acting. And I felt fine. Like I didn't run into any complications when I was young, which I think is probably a miracle. And what turned around was when I was pregnant with my first child. So at 21, and that was where, and I moved to Calgary and met my husband and so started seeing a diabetic specialist once I got pregnant and um, he, you know, helped me out a lot through that pregnancy. Went into the hospital a month before I delivered her because it was known back then that uh, di babies of diabetic women were usually stillborn. So as a safety precaution, you know, you put into the hospital at eight months and then they could monitor you and the baby for that whole month and then uh, would deliver a month early to make sure the baby was okay. So then, um, yeah, so that helps. So my daughter then was born a month early. So, but she's, she's fine. She's doing great. Um, and then I wanted to have another child soon after because I knew, you know, there's probably just a window of time to have children. So I had my son, I uh, got pregnant with my son a year and a half after. And same thing, really good care, really good care for my pregnancy. And then same thing, hospital for a month. Um, they uh, delivered him early for C-section. And he was born with quite low blood sugars. So, you know, both my kids are in their 30s now. So to this day, they both actually go hypoglycemic quite easily. But, you know, to me, that is okay because other than that, they're both perfectly fine which I think, again, is a miracle considering, you know, back then we didn't have the care that we do now. So, so I consider my kids my miracles and they help me, you know, really take good care of myself and everything. Um, yeah, and then uh, my husband and me split up. So I moved to Vancouver as a single mom and did quite well here. Like I find the diabetic care here really well at the GH and everything didn't haven't had too many problems, but um, what did happen a couple of years ago is I've started having foot issues with neuropathy and have run into a few foot issues where um, the wounds on my feet wouldn't heal. So I've had, um, uh, you know, I had to have a bypass surgery on my left leg to get circulation going down to my foot to heal my wound. And that was two years ago. And you know, I think it's going to probably always be almost a chronic wound because I always have to put a bandage on it because it's just below my left baby toe on the side of my foot. So I have to be so careful with footwear. And, you know, with summer coming or hitting, I started wearing um, these keen sandals that my, or my orthopedic doctor told me was okay. 
and I didn't even realize it, and it kind of roughed up where the wound was. So I'm having to be careful again. So I just went to orthotic, got my sandal fixed up a bit, and it's kind of a drag to think I've got to wear this sandal again, you know, until this wound heals up. So that's kind of my frustration is, you know, but I know it's part of being diabetic. I have to be thankful that I'm doing as well as I am. And, you know, a couple of years ago, got the sensors, which um, is a game changer for sure being a diabetic because my control is better than it's ever been in my whole life. And when I started, when I got the sensors, I didn't have control for them. So I actually had to, you know, thank God for my parents. They were able to help me buy them back through the Compassionate Care Program. Just recently, I get half of, half of it coverage. So I just have to pay for one a month, thank goodness, which is still a little bit of a stretch for me. But anyway, I'm just, I'm thankful that, you know, they exist. Total game changer. My health is a lot better. And, um, you know, and getting used to, you know, accepting and making the best actually out of every day. Every day I've got, because I feel thankful I've made it this far. Didn't think I would, but I have. So, you know, there's a lot to be thankful for. And um, yeah, I guess that's it. Just... Great. Yeah, yeah Teresa, so nice to hear that in your lifetime, just like Janet, you have experienced completely antiquated diabetes care to now when technology offers you so much and, and you've been able to see kind of, you know, this whole spectrum of um, treatment. Um, yeah. And feeling like the odd person out as a young kid growing up and now it, it seems like you're very comfortable, you feel like you're managing well, that you take on everything. Um, yeah, so it's, it's nice to see that evolution um, in your life. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's what I think. It's just, you know, before I used to be terrified and scared of everything, but now, yeah, I, I'm accepting it and I'm taking on a more positive outlook. So, and the sensors, like I said, thank God for the sensors. <laughs> That's changed everything. Thank you, Teresa. Um, we have time for one more. Again, the people who haven't shared, we're, we're going to do this the same thing in August, so don't worry. Um, Alicia, are, are you up yet? I mean, is your sound fixed yet? Can you hear me now? Yes. Oh, yay. Okay, great. There's only one page of you. Um, I've learned a lot. Like, Dave, I know, you know, I feel like I know different parts of your story, but um, the fact that no one's ever asked you about your diagnosis, it, it actually, like, I, I'm astounded um, because your story is really um, just heart-wrenching. I mean, really, really heart-wrenching. So I'm glad you you know, it took many, many years, but you finally had the opportunity to share that. Um, so thanks again, everyone. Hope to see you next month. Um, and if you have any questions or anything, just please feel free to um, email. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.